We've got two passages of Scripture that we're going to be reading, and uh, one comes from Luke 22, be our first passage, Luke 22, 54 through 62, so on page 883 in the Pew Bible, and then we're going to be turning over to the end of John's Gospel into John 21. So we'll begin here with Luke 22, 54 through 62. You can follow along as I read. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Turning over in your Bible to John 21, 15 through 19, page 907 if you're using the Pew Bible. John 21, 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John adds this commentary here. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And After saying this, he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord. Seated. All right, so we've been working through a four-week sermon series called Essential Church. This is the fourth uh, and concluding uh, week in this sermon series. And we put together a graph here that shows uh, the, this, this idea of Christian discipleship, which is undergirding our, uh, our theme for the series, that there are three main components that make up Christian discipleship. There's worship, which is our life oriented to God. There's fellowship, which is our life oriented towards each other. And there's mission, our life oriented towards the world. And the burden of the series has been not only to show how these three aspects of the Christian faith are essential for discipleship. Right? They're all contained in our graph. They're all contained within the broader circle of discipleship. But even more pointedly, how these three aspects need to be done in continuity or in community as an essential aspect of Christian discipleship. So we don't just do worship by ourselves, fellowship by ourselves, and mission by ourselves. It's when we come in together in community 
and engage in these three spheres in community that the wheel of discipleship turns. We need each other for worship. We need each other for fellowship and we need each other for mission. We can't do or be all that God is calling us to do or be if we try to lone ranger it. But the central gear, if you think of this this wheel of discipleship as having a hub there at the center, the central gear of the whole discipleship enterprise is the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus that turns the three bigger spheres that then turns the single sphere of Christian discipleship. But not the love of Jesus in the sense the the love that we have for Jesus, however true and important that is, but the love that Jesus has for us. And not simply the love that Jesus has for us as a community, as a people of God or as a local church, but the love that he has for each one of us individually and personally, the love that he has for you and the love that he has for me, And our individual experience of the personal love of Jesus, that is the animating energy that makes the whole corporate wheel of discipleship turn. We worship God because we have personally experienced God's love for us in Jesus. We love each other in Christian fellowship out of the overflow of our personal experience of God's love for us in Jesus. And we spread the love of God out into the world out of the overflow of our personal experience of God's love for us in Jesus. The love of Jesus that we experience personally is the joy of the Lord that gives us the strength to turn the wheel of Christian discipleship. So this morning's sermon is about the love that Jesus has for you personally and for me personally and how that love energizes the whole of the Christian life. Now, there are two different aspects of the love of Jesus. There's his accepting love and there's his perfecting love. And both of these aspects of Jesus's love are essential for a life of discipleship. Here's the thing. These two aspects of Jesus' love need to be properly ordered in relationship to each other. I had gotten them out of order in my life about a year ago. I've talked numerous times in the past about going into my sabbatical and having an anxiety break for about six weeks. Not a break as in rest, but like a break as in breakdown, right? So, and when you get the accepting love and the perfecting love of Jesus out of order, it gets your life out of order. So I want to talk about both of these aspects of Jesus's love, but I want to help us think about them and put them in the right order. So we're going to look at uh, these two texts that have been read for us as a way to enter into these two aspects of Jesus's love. We'll look first at Luke 22, 54 through 62, to look at Jesus's accepting love And then our passage from John 21, 15 through 19, to look at Jesus' perfecting love. Then we're going to close out with three thoughts about the relationship between these two aspects of Jesus' love and how they fit together in a life of discipleship. 
All right, so our passage here in Luke is going to drop us right into the middle of the, 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 the conclusion of Jesus' story. And uh, he's been arrested, and he's heading uh, for his trial and crucifixion. So we're going to see Peter in the courtyard, and I want to give a little bit of a context, a lead-in to that situation. So I want to, let me set the scene just a little bit. So if you have your Bible open uh, to Luke 22, it's where we'll be here at the beginning. And if we were to move a little earlier back into Luke 22 towards the beginning, we see that Jesus is right at the end of his ministry. It's the night before his arrest at the beginning of Luke 22, and his crucifixion will happen the next day. And the disciples don't know what's about to happen. Jesus has told them numerous times that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be put on trial, he's going to be crucified and killed. But the disciples aren't getting it. They're not picking it up. But they can tell that something is about to happen. Jesus has been out of Jerusalem for a long time. He's now come into Jerusalem. The tension is getting hotter and hotter between Jesus and the, and the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they can sense that things are reaching a tipping point. And in 2231, Jesus tells Peter that Satan has asked to sift him like wheat. You can look over here to verse 31 in chapter 22. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus tells Peter that he, Peter, is about to enter a moment of extreme testing Satan himself, but that Jesus himself has prayed for Peter that his faith might not fail. Now, given Peter's expectations of the coming conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Jerusalem, when he hears that he's being brought into a season of testing and that he might fail, he must be assuming that failure will mean that when the hour of truth comes, Peter will in some way chicken out or drop the ball or in some way fail to stand by Jesus in that moment of truth. So Peter steals himself with resolve. You look in verse 33. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'm with you to the end, Jesus. No matter what comes, I will stand by you all the way to the end, even if I have to die with you. But the words of Jesus perhaps are not especially encouraging to Peter's resolve because Jesus then tells Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Before the dawn breaks, you will deny that you, that you know me three times. But I suspect this only deepened Peter's resolve to do right by Jesus and to stand by Jesus. We move down and further in Luke 22 and verses 47 through 53, and we see that later that night, sure enough, the, 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 um, the servants of the high priest, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. Jesus and the disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a secluded uh, preserve outside of uh, the city of Jerusalem. And when the soldiers come, Peter jumps between Jesus and the soldiers and he outs with the sword and he attacks the leader of the arresting party. He swings a death stroke, just misses, and he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. But then Jesus steps in, he stops the fighting before it really gets crazy, 
And he heals the servant's ear. And then we read in John's gospel that Jesus says to the soldiers, let these go, referring to his disciples. You didn't come for them. You came to arrest me. Let them go. And so the disciples at that point flee out into the dark of the garden. And one translation uh, reads, and I like this translation, they ran for their lives. So they skedaddle out into the shadows of the garden, and Jesus is bound up, and he's taken the high priest's house. That brings us to our passage here in Luke 22, 54. In verse 54, Luke tells us that Peter has rallied his courage. I mean, I can picture him like sprinting out into the shadows of the garden, and you sort of stop and realize that they're not chasing you, and you kind of gather yourself, and now he's rallied his courage, and he's following the arresting party as it leads Jesus out of the garden. He's following from a distance, and I picture him here kind of creeping uh, between the shadows, weaving between the shadows in the garden, and then as they move down into the city, uh, ducking in and out of the alleyways, trying to stay hidden, but also trying to stay close. And can you imagine the adrenaline that is coursing through his body at this moment? Heart is beating fast and heavy, breath coming in quick, shallow breaths, every sense on high alert. And he's just tried to kill someone, and then he ran for his life. And I don't know when was the last time you just tried to kill someone and ran for your life, but I can tell you that gets the blood up a little bit. You know what I'm saying? All right, so Peter is completely animated. If you've ever been in combat behind enemy lines at night, you probably have a little bit of a sense that Peter is feeling in this moment. So he follows the soldiers from a distance all the way to the high priest's house. He can look through the gate and he can see into the courtyard where someone has lit a fire and he can see the people moving in and out and he can see Jesus there sitting in the courtyard. At this point, Peter does a remarkably brave thing. He summons up all of his courage. And he walks right into the lion's den. He sits down among the people in the courtyard around the fire incognito, just trying to blend in, looking like he belongs, waiting for his opportunity to act. And I don't think he knows what he's going to do at this point, but he knows he has to do something. Jesus is in a very bad spot, and Peter is determined not to fail him. He's determined to help Jesus in some way. And then we get into verse 56, as he's sitting around the fire, one of the servant girls looks more closely at him across the fire and says, this man was with him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Peter, I would already be tensed up, and then this would just only make my heart skip a few beats all the more. But Peter does his best to remain cool, and he denies it, and he says, woman, I don't know him. And what else would we expect him to say? How is he going to deliver Jesus if he himself gets arrested? He has to remain undercover if he's going to be of any use to Jesus at all. Then a little later, someone else sees him and says, you also are one of them. And now with this second accusation, I got to think that Peter, his courage is beginning to reach the red line. 
The various gospel accounts, if we go into Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel or John's gospel, we can see that this whole situation in the courtyard, Peter's anxiety is growing each time someone confronts him with knowing Jesus. The first time he's confronted, he just simply denies it. But Matthew and Mark draw particular attention to this second time that he's confronted because when he denies it the second time, he denies it with an oath. Maybe something like, I swear to God as my witness, I do not know the man. Now, in our culture, we're swearing to God all the time. I swear to God I didn't take your pen, right? Like we just use it flippantly in our culture. But in the ancient world, and especially in the Jewish world, you did not likely invoke the name or the names of the gods. Swearing oaths of fidelity was how you made legal contracts in the ancient world. So you didn't just use it in everyday talk. And it was even how you made peace treaties between warring nations. It was a big deal to swear oaths. So for Peter to be swearing an oath, he's feeling the pressure and the intensity is getting ratcheted up. But he tightens his grip on his courage, and he continues undercover. He won't abandon Jesus. And then Luke tells us about an hour goes by, and the third accusation is made. And this one strikes the closest to home. Verse 59, uh, a man sees Peter and says, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Matthew and Mark's gospel tell us that the man was able to to make this accusation in part because he recognized Peter's accent. Your accent is giving you away. You're a Galilean, and Jesus is a Galilean. But even more pointedly, John's gospel tells us that the man who is making this accusation was a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off in the garden and who had been in the garden with the arresting party and had seen one of Jesus' disciples attack his relative. So now this man is looking crossways at Peter across the fire, and he says, you certainly are one of them. Your accent is giving you away. You're a Galilean like he is. All eyes must have that point around the fire turned towards Peter. Peter makes his third denial, but this time with maximum intensity. Matthew and Mark tell us that Peter calls down curses and anathemas. The Greek text in Matthew and Mark gets a little tricky at this point. And some commentators think that when Peter is calling down anathemas, he's calling down anathemas on himself in order to, to, like, if I'm telling a lie, then may God do such and such to me. But other commentators, based on the way that the text reads, think that he's calling down anathemas and curses on Jesus in order to prove that he isn't one of Jesus' disciples. That guy over there, that guy, such and such and such and such, anathemas. I don't know the man. Maybe he did a little bit of both. In any case, if he was beginning to panic before, he's in full-on panic now. I don't know if you've ever been cornered like that. Maybe not cornered in exactly this same way, life and death, that Peter is, but the threats coming at you from all sides and you feel the pressure mounting and you're fighting to stave off panic. You're fighting to hold it all together. I think that's how Peter feels at this point. And while the words of this third denial are still on his lips, the cock crows. 
Then verse 61. Verse 61, it just just slays me. Peter denies the Lord for the third time. Across the courtyard, the Lord turns and looks at Peter. Can you imagine that moment? In that moment, as Peter is in the midst of denying Jesus with oaths and anathemas, Jesus turns and looks at him. The truth of Jesus' words comes flooding back to Peter. And in my mind's eye, I see Peter faced with the crushing realization he doesn't know how to save Jesus. That he doesn't have it in him to die with him either. He had tried. He had really tried. When the other disciples, they had fled into the dark of the garden, but Peter had walked right into the courtyard of the high priest. He had really tried, but he couldn't do it. He was too scared. And in the shame of his inability to follow Jesus all the way to prison or to death, it washes over him and he stumbles out of the courtyard and he weeps bitterly. I picked this episode in Jesus' life because I wanted to draw particular attention to verse 61. What do you think was in the look on Jesus' face when he turned and looked at Peter across the courtyard? What do you think was in the look on Jesus' face when he turned and looked at Peter across the courtyard? Judgment? Disgust? Maybe that's too harsh. Maybe hurt, disappointment. Maybe that's too harsh. Maybe sadness? When you read verse 61, that that look on Jesus' face, what comes to your mind? Luke doesn't tell us here in this passage what was in Jesus' look, but he does tell us throughout his Gospels. And in particular, he tells us in Jesus' parables. Perhaps the most famous of all of Jesus' parables is recorded in Luke's Gospel in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Even if you didn't grow up going to church, you've heard of the prodigal son. It's made it into our common vernacular. And we all know the story. The youngest son, he takes his inheritance early. He squanders all of it in wild and loose living. And then he comes home in shame with his tail between his legs. And as Jesus tells the parable, chapter 15, and then in verse 20, When the father sees the youngest son coming home from a long way off, Jesus says he felt compassion. He ran toward his son and embraced him and kissed him. He looked with compassion upon his son in the midst of his son's failure, and he welcomed him and he embraced him. And that's what we find all throughout 
the Gospels and all throughout Luke's account of Jesus. Jesus' look of compassion in the midst of our failures. When Jesus sees people broken and battered by their sin, grieving and turned inward by their shame, the look on his face is always a look of compassion. This is the amazing, amazing truth of Jesus' accepting love. He loves us just as we are in all of our brokenness and in all of our failure and in all of our inability to become what we know that we should be. Maybe you're in Peter's spot this morning. Maybe you've tried, I mean really tried, to do what's right. But then have turned away in fear. Maybe you knew the right path. It was so clear, but you couldn't follow it through to the end. When you reached down inside yourself and pulled up every last measure of your strength, it wasn't enough. And you just couldn't do what Jesus asked of you. And then as the cock is crowing, in the midst of your failure, you look across the courtyard there's Jesus looking at you. And the great question before you is this. What is the look on his face? In the midst of your failure, what is the look on his face? Do you imagine that Jesus looks upon you with judgment? Or at least some measure of sternness and disapproval? Or perhaps with self-pity and sadness. He doesn't. He looks upon you with compassion and acceptance and love. Even when our sin is a failure to stand by him, even when our sin wounds him, even when our sin puts him on the cross, he looks upon us with compassion and with acceptance. And this is the first and great founding idea of the Christian religion and the whole of the Christian gospel, that God accepts us in Jesus just as we are, sin and all. That he does not ask us to clean ourselves up before he extends his love to us and welcomes us. That all of our guilt and all of our failure and offense and all of the pain that we have rightly accrued to our accounts is dissolved in the sacrificial love that God has for us in Jesus. All of the blood that we cannot wash off of our hands. All of the failures that we can't undo. The things that we've said that we cannot unsay. The wounds that we've inflicted that we don't have the power to heal the crushing weight of all that we have done wrong. When we are awash in our weeping, covered in our shame, Jesus looks at us across the courtyard with compassion in his eyes and with accepting love in his heart. And if we can't learn to see that look in his eyes, we will be forever stymied in our efforts to serve and love him in return, the wheel of discipleship will never turn 
we cannot learn to see the accepting, free, and unconditional love of Jesus. The whole gospel and the entire wheel of discipleship begins to turn on just this point, the compassion and accepting love of God and Jesus. And that brings us to the second aspect of Jesus' love, his perfecting love. Because Jesus doesn't just accept us as we are. He does that always and forever. But he, his love also perfects us and changes us and makes us into the kind of people that we ourselves want to be. So flip over in your, in your Bibles there to John 21. We're going to move uh, much more quickly through this second story here with Peter and Jesus uh, after Jesus' resurrection. The story of Peter doesn't end in the courtyard with his three denials. We move here to this post-resurrection experience with Jesus on the beach and three affirmations. Peter has gone fishing. He's come back in and he meets Jesus on the shore. And Jesus comes to him and he reinstates Peter back into a place of leadership and ministry. Three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Once for each of Peter's three denials. And three times Peter affirms his love for Jesus. And with each affirmation, Jesus is handing responsibility back to Peter, asking him to feed and to care for his people. Peter hasn't been set aside. He still has a part to play in God's kingdom. But I want to draw particular attention to verse 18. After Jesus has given Peter these instructions about feeding and caring for his sheep, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. The very thing that Peter failed to do in the courtyard, to go to prison and to death, he will, by the perfecting love of Jesus, grow in his capacity to do so that in 64 AD, he will go to prison and to death and be martyred under the Emperor Nero. And the simple point I want to make here is that the rest of Peter's story shows that Jesus' love is not just an accepting love. It is also a perfecting love. Jesus did not abandon Peter, even when Peter abandoned him. He stood by Peter and grew him up in his faith until he was able to do the very thing that he had failed to do the first time. And this too is the glory of the gospel. Not only does Jesus accept us as we are in all of our brokenness and in all of our shame and sin, but he also transforms us and he strengthens us and causes us to stand in the very places that we have failed. And that's why the Christian gospel is such good news because it speaks to us of Jesus's accepting love and also of his perfecting love. How wonderful it is to be forgiven, to be accepted just as we are, but how miserable it would be if Jesus just left us wallowing 
in our sin, if he left us just as he found us. But he doesn't. He steps down into our pain, into our shame, and into our self-harm. And with compassion, he takes our face in his hands, tells us that he loves us. and Then he fills us up with his own spirit and he lifts us up out of our sin and begins to teach us to walk in his manner of life. Now, in conclusion, let me say three things about how these go together. This is a bit of a longer conclusion, so don't get too excited because it's not going to, you know, there's a little bit here, but it's all heading towards the conclusion. Three things about this accepting and uh, perfecting love and how they go together and lend themselves to our growth in discipleship. The first is this. The Christian life begins with the accepting love of Jesus and only then moves to the perfecting love of Jesus. We start with the accepting love and then we move to the perfecting love. Think about parenting as an illustration or as a metaphor. When a baby is born, before the child can do anything good or bad, the parent simply loves the child just because the child is the child. The baby doesn't perform anything. The parents don't ask the baby to perform anything. There's no expectations or demands that are put upon the baby. The parents just love the baby just because the baby is their baby. It is only as the child begins to grow and develops agency and a will and capacities that the parent begins to love the child with a perfecting love. It's only then that the parents begin to ask things of the child in love. And it's the same way in our relationship with Jesus. We enter into the Christian life as helpless babies, crying and with dirty diapers. And we cannot merit Jesus' love. He simply loves us as we are. We begin the Christian life with salvation by grace apart from works. And then we end the Christian life with well done, good and faithful servant. So, so the, the love of Jesus takes us, picks us up with this free accepting love and it moves us then over time into the perfecting love. And we need both aspects of Jesus' love to experience the fullness of all that he intends for us. He picks us up as spiritual babies and he turns us into spiritual adults. Second observation to make here is that Jesus' accepting love is forever. It's for always. It's not just for the baby stage of our faith. As we begin to grow as followers of Jesus, he rightly begins to love us with a perfecting love. He rightly begins to ask things of us and to shape us and to train us and to discipline us so that we can increasingly have lives that reflect who he is. He wants us to flourish, and that means he teaches us self-control, and how to share and how to tell the truth and how to surrender our lives to him and all the other things that we need to know to be flourishing human beings. And the older we get, the more our experience of his perfecting love increases. But even as our experience of his perfecting love increases, he never diminishes his accepting love of us. His affection and compassion and acceptance for us is never contingent 
upon our ability to measure up to his perfecting love. Like a good parent who never stops feeling love for his child, even in the midst of discipline, Jesus never stops feeling love and compassion for us, even when he is bringing towards us perfecting love. Here's the third point connected to that, the last point. We can only withstand as much of Jesus' perfecting love as we have experienced his accepting love. We can only withstand as much of Jesus' perfecting love as we have experienced his accepting love. These two aspects of Jesus' love have to be in proportion to each other. We only have a minimal experience, small experience of Jesus' accepting love, but a robust awareness of his demands of perfecting love. We are going to turn away from him in fear, or we're going to exhaust ourselves trying to measure up to his perfecting love in our own strength. Both of those are going to lead to spiritual failure. This isn't a sermon on parenting, but parenting, I think, can be such a helpful illustration for the point that we're trying to make here about Jesus' accepting and perfecting love. So let me draw again uh, to parenting. Some of us as parents, I think this can be true for many of us as parents, or maybe you don't have kids, but you can think about as a child with your parents, right? Some of us as parents, we pull back on accepting love as our kids get older, and we really begin to lean into perfecting love. So as perfecting love goes up, accepting love goes down. They're like kind of a proportional to each other. And somehow we think that these two aspects of love are mutually exclusive. But if we impose perfecting love on our kids to a degree that outstrips their felt experience of our accepting love. It's going to exhaust our kids or it's going to lead them into places of rebellion. If your kids are getting anxious or fearful or rebellious or exhausted in their relationship with you, it may be, not always, but it may be because they are experiencing too much of your perfecting love and not enough of your accepting love. Perhaps it's time for you to take a step back and ask yourself if you are radiating too much perfective love, perfecting love, and not enough accepting love. And it's the same way with our life of discipleship and Jesus' love in our lives. Because God have mercy if we try to turn the wheel of discipleship without a robust experience of Jesus' accepting love we are going to exhaust ourselves. Now, this is true in my own life. Somewhere along the way, early last year, I had lost hold of the free and kind and compassionate and unconditional accepting love of Jesus, and I had gotten more and more focused on Jesus' perfecting love, his expectations, the cost of obedience, what he required of me, his call to love others and to sacrifice. And as I was working so hard to be what I thought Jesus wanted me to be, 
I only had eyes to see the perfecting love of Jesus, and I lost sight of his accepting love. And the wheel of discipleship got heavier and heavier and heavier until it got so heavy, I could not turn it anymore. And I broke down. Because we can't turn the wheel of discipleship, the strength of either our love for Jesus or solely in the strength of Jesus' perfecting love for us. What unlocks the power of the gospel in our lives, what begins turning the wheel of Christian discipleship is God's free acceptance of us in Jesus. Jesus' accepting love for us is not the end of the gospel. It's not even the whole gospel. But it is the beginning of the gospel. And without a robust foundation of the experience of Jesus' compassion and tender and free love for us, just as we are in all of our failures, we will never move past our failures. We will never receive the benefit of Jesus' perfecting love if we do not first receive an experience of his accepting love. That's where we must start. It's not where we stop, but it's where we start. Jesus had not accepted Peter's failure in the courtyard. Peter never would have succeeded in his martyrdom at Rome. Poor Peter in the courtyard. He had gotten it all wrong. He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. He thought that he had to die to save Jesus. He hadn't realized that Jesus had to die to save him. He thought that he had to help Jesus. Jesus had come to help Peter. And in Peter's confusion that the wheel of discipleship turned on the power of his own strength, his confusion that he could respond to the perfecting love of Jesus in his own power, he had come to see that he didn't have strength or love enough. But in spite of his weakness and failure, Jesus looked upon him with compassion and loved him in his brokenness. Maybe that's you this morning. You've been trying to crank the wheel of discipleship in your own strength. You've been trying to respond to the perfecting love of Jesus in your own power. Jesus invites you this morning back to the beginning to be reminded this morning of the deep and boundless and free accepting love that he extends to you. His look for you this morning is always and eternally a look of love and compassion. Hold on to that look, even as you mature and grow and become aware of the things that Jesus asks of you. He never stops looking at you with love and compassion. Father, thank you that you've sent Jesus who shows us not only his face, but he shows us your face. And we thank you that your look of love is always towards us. Or we acknowledge that we have at times been like Peter in the courtyard, been like the prodigal, squandered the gifts that you've given to us. 
And each of us reaches the maximum output that we have in our own strength, and then we sit there in our shame and our failure, and we're afraid to meet your gaze. Help us to remember that you love us. To look upon you and to see your love for us, and in that love for us, that we would then open ourselves up to you and receive your strength to walk in new ways of living. God, thank you for Jesus, and thank you that he loves us. In his name we pray.